Okay, let's take this to the spider panel one last time. This time last year, you know the story, we assembled a panel about spiders and Spider-Man, and we talked about Spider-Man. Now there's a Spider-Man movie, and as we said, when there's a Miles Morales Spider-Man movie, we're going to have a spider panel about the Spider-Verse of Spider-Man. Stay tuned. Good day and welcome to Writers Get Animated, a podcast about storytelling, animation, and getting bitten by radioactive spiders. I'm Chris Leva. And I'm Mackenzie Worrell. And today we've brought back the spider panel. So we have Megan Patrick and Adam Caudill joining us again. Welcome, Adam, Megan. Hi, thanks for having us back. Yeah, really glad to be here. <laughs> it's so formal. Yes. Right. Well, yes. thank you. Yeah. So well, I'm really glad you're both here as well, because this, well, our subject for today gets into things that I know nothing about in the Spider-Man background universe. Oh, so you need some nerds. Yes. No, we, no. <laughs> we needed people. We needed... This podcast did not have enough nerd cred. <laughs> That's true. So we needed to come in and up the nerd cred. This podcast about doing uh, literary analysis about animated shows and movies uh, needed some more specific scholars. Of we need spider scholars. All right, there we go. S spider scholars bitten by a radioactive PhD student. <laughs> See, I've been called as venom apologists. Oh, oh. <laughs> that's true. Did, did I, I? We won't get into we venom. Won't. We, we won't. won't talk about it. Okay. Well, well, I, I want to talk about it after this. Though, oh, sure. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So today we're specifically discussing Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Since last we spoke, there have been three films with the Spider-Man universe. There's been Spider-Man Homecoming. I'm sorry, Spider-Man colon Homecoming. There's been Venom and now Spider-Man colon into the Spider-Verse. And I think next year there will be Spider-Man colon Far From Home? I think that's what yes, they're calling yes. it. they're mm -hmm. calling it Far From Home. Because he goes on a Europe trip. So it's like European vacation. It's like the second <laughs> vacation film, but in Europe. So like <laughs> Spider-Man with Tobey Maguire, like, but a fourth one? <laughs> I, I guess. I guess. Okay. <laughs> so... As we get into this, I think we're going to start with just some general thoughts of it. So hopefully those of you, um, hopefully few people who have not seen Spider-Man colon Into the Spider-Verse, um, if you haven't seen it, we won't spoil things for you. When we get ready to spoil things, we will let you know, dear listeners, so you can stop, go watch the movie, come back, and continue on. Does that, does that work for I, everybody? I think that sounds great. I'll try. Okay. Okay. Uh, so a quick, quick overview, general thought that I want to throw out there early is, so I'm clearly a big fan of Spider-Man for the fact that I got brought in on the spider panel. Uh, <laughs> I went and saw the movie with my wife, who is not really a Spider-Man person. Uh, she's had no idea who Miles Morales was. 
had only heard of Spider-Gwen from me explaining Spider-Gwen briefly <laughs> in one conversation a few months ago. Um, Spider-Noir, Spider-Pig, Penny Parker totally out the window. Uh, she has not seen almost any of the Spider-Man movies. So, and didn't even see the trailer for this film before we watched it. <laughs> I really wanted her going in blind. I loved it and she loved it. Like, wow. we left the film and she's like, that was great. Uh, she's like, I, she told me that she completely loves it. It was one of her like favorite movies she's seen recently. Um, going in, I mean, she had fun, she enjoyed it. She thought it was a good story, really liked all the characters. And then I, being a fan of Spider-Man, also was like very satisfied with the film. Uh, yeah. So no, overall, think- overall, it was it was uh, well done for both. Those of you who out there who may be big fans of Spider-Man, but definitely could be good for those of you who are only minor fans of Spider-Man. Hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think the film was really accessible um, because of the way that they handled the origin story and sort of the, the beats of repetition that they had within it. Um, so there were, uh, my husband and I went and saw it earlier today, actually, and uh, we were a lot, of, like, a lot of kids in the audience. Um, and so, like, uh, we, even, even the, the trailers leading up to it, um, there was a kid that asked his dad, he was like, is that a new superhero? Because it was the Shazam trailer. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. he's like, no, no, it's not a new superhero. <laughs> and he's like trying to explain to his kid who Shazam <laughs> is, and it was great. But, um, yeah, no, I thought it was uh, very accessible for people who have not been uh, as into Spider-Man as, or don't have the experience. So they definitely made it. For those people it, yeah, as well. absolutely. I mean, it is really hard when you take the mythology of something and try to explain it to somebody who has no knowledge. Mm-hmm. So, for example, this is slightly off topic, but totally on topic. So um, I took my son, Jack, who's six, to go see the S- Superman musical in Cincinnati. And he had no idea. He knew Superman as a thing, but didn't know any origin story. So beforehand to, you know, keep him entertained, uh, I was explaining, you know, he's an alien. He has these parents from Kansas, like where your grandparents are from. Like I was trying to explain all this and just like how much do I give him and how much do I say to give him enough of an understanding? Like what are are the essential elements of the mythology Mm -hmm. that he's going to be fine watching this? So... I, it was it was a little bit interesting to figure out for Superman what that distinct mythology, necessary mythology that you need to know. Um, and I think this film went for, let's look at the myth of Spider-Man and deconstruct it to here are the essential elements of the mythology of Spider-Man. Yeah, I think one thing that, superhero movie fans are used to and just the mainstream culture as a whole is used to is that origin stories are really tiring at this point mm. and this mm-hmm. movie wanted to address that while still doing an origin story in the most delightful interesting nuanced way absolutely yeah i i agree like it wasn't they almost both it, it was a great origin story origin story and then they also parodied how repetitive origin stories are. It's very meta. Like, yes. at this point, half of the, like, theatrical films that contain the word Spider-Man are origin stories of Spider-Man. Like, we've seen this, and this one is probably included in that. Like, so it's just, but this one is, it parodied it, but it also made it really tight and did it really well. Mm-hmm. 
And it was the origin story of Miles Morales' Spider-Man, which is a Spider-Man that people don't know. And that's, I think, part of what made it, like, new and fresh and charming is, like, we got to meet Miles Morales, and I think they did a really good job with that. Yeah, it wasn't Peter Parker again and Mary Jane again. Mm -hmm. Again. So we had somebody completely fresh with some of the same things, but, you know, so we get a lot of mirrored instances and moments, but it's not quite the same. It's different enough. Everything's just a little bit to a different degree. Yeah. Yeah. How much um, did you guys know about Miles Morales and his story before you went in? Did anybody know much about Miles? So I knew a little bit about Miles Morales. I, um, he comes out of the uh, the Ultimates run of Marvel, which is a, an arc that I, or not an arc because it went much longer than that. Uh, it's not, uh, I didn't read a lot of Ultimates, um, but I do, I knew about him. I had, this was kind of my first formal introduction to him as a character though. So I knew things mm. about his powers and, you know, all that, but not who he was as a character. Mm. I actually read a lot of the Ultimate Spider-Man, um, not into the point where Miles Morales came into it, but I did read some part of that. I have read a few things with him in it. I've read more about Miles Morales than I've actually read, though, like following that specific run of it. And I think part of that is that when he came out was also co coinciding with the time in my life when I don't have all the time to follow comic books that I used to have as well. So. Hmm. How about for you, Mackenzie? Did you know much? I know I was like this magical intersection of like knowing some because I am a nerd in many ways. And my dad is also like a spider super fan. Um, so like I knew of Miles Morales. I knew some of the the oeuvre of how it happened in the Ultimate Comics and how he's now integrated with the greater Marvel Universe. But I don't know like any of the details about his arcs and anything. And so what I really liked about this movie was like the... I had to look up before this episode of recording, um, like what was something from the comics that I didn't know about and was delighted by versus what was something that was completely brand new for this movie that I didn't know about and was delighted by. And I don't want to get too spoilery yet, but they matched equal delight in my head. Um, so I thought it was a good meshing of new and original work. And one thing I'll throw out there, like from a comics standpoint, my this. This is my, I'm like 90% confident on this. Um, so uh, Marvel made the Ultimate Universe, which basically they were like, hey, we're getting rid of the pop with all these movies. We're just going to reboot everything. And, or maybe this is started a little before the movies, but we're just going to reboot everything so that our comics are accessible to new people because we're not on not issue 900, we're on issue one, and they recreated all of their storyline. So mm -hmm. and then later on, there was kind of a crossover event where they basically ended the multiple Marvel universe, killed off almost all of those characters and said, yeah, we're done with this little side project. We're going back to the main Marvel universe as kind of our only thing. Um, Miles Morales was one of the few things that survived the ultimate universe, both in story and then also kind of as a meta standpoint, when they tried a bunch of experimental things, they tried like taking characters in different directions and like Miles Morales was one of the few things that they did that was brand new in the Marvel in Marvel Ultimate Universe that he is now continued on and still has a story and still has comic books and all that because I think they managed to create a, a new Spider-Man that is 
I think he's relatable and likable for a lot of the same reasons Peter Parker was originally, but he is also a very unique character at the same time. Mm-hmm. So. so what did we get from... Let's, let's focus in on Miles a little bit. We won't get too spoilery yet, um, but what do we get in Miles Morales at the beginning of the film? Just, like, who is Miles, and what, do we, what does the movie give us? in that main character. Um, the first time we really see Miles, uh, the, the sort of the intro to him is he's sitting at a drawing board and he's got markers in hand and we find out that he is an artist. Um, he works in like this very kind of like urban graffiti style and of course later we find out that he also does this elsewhere. Um, but so we know he's just kind of this creative kid. Um, <laughs> I actually really liked, he's got his headphones on and he's listening. He doesn't actually know all the words to the song he's singing, though. Uh, so it's just kind of an endearing moment, I thought. So magical. He's a teenager. He's not talented at everything or anything. Nope. <laughs> I love the way that nothing fits him through the movie. Like, he's just, he shoots up and he's all gangly and awkward and, like, none of his, like, everything's too small. It's just a constant... When, when, I, when you start meeting him, you, you notice somebody who's not confident. So it's somebody who's modern, but who's not that modern confident that we've seemed to be getting, where it's like somebody who always makes all the right things. Mm -hmm. So it's not somebody who's bullied or ostracized like Peter Parker, you know, oh no, he's beat up by Flash. Um, again, you know, <laughs> he's, you know, getting you know, his underwear pulled or whatever, you know, happens to Peter Parker. But he's still not popular. And, you know, he's he's just, um, I don't know, the, the authenticness of his being 13 just feels a little bit right. well, I mean, stronger. He's, he's growing, he's going to a new school. It's always, you know, it's always a difficult and, time. And you even get to see early on that, like, when he walks through his neighborhood... He is, like, he's not popular, but, like, he's got friends and all of that, but they all go to his old school, and then he's in this new school now, and there he's out of place. He doesn't know people. His dad embarrasses him in a really great scene early on. Yes, which, is in, the, which is in the trailer, <laughs> yes, but absolutely. still made me laugh. It's in the, yeah, but, like, it, it's it's a great little moment, and, like, but he's, he's kind of in this, like, fish-out-of-water thing in that he misses his old school, but his parents are kind of pushing him to like, you know, get his, reach his potential and, and make him go to this new, more elite kind of private school, so. And what I find interesting, and I guess I will start the conversation here and we'll get, I don't want to get terribly spoilery yet, but I think there's an interesting um, shift in theme in terms of for Peter Parker, Spider-Man is about responsibility. Mm -hmm. And for Miles, Spider-Man is about expectation. You have expectations for yourself and expectations that the yes. world has for you. Mm -hmm. And you have to fulfill those expectations that you have that are internal and external happening at the same time. I just think, I just like that it was a different definition of why in, in some ways. And I know that some of it was still the responsibility, but I know that expectation was one thing that they just kept bringing up over and over and over. 
mm-hmm. um, with the fact of him having to do a report on great expectations. So with mm-hmm. great expectations comes yeah. great right. responsibility. Those, yeah. <laughs> that's not even how the quote goes. Exactly. That's not how the quote goes. And I mean, even his, uh, he had at one point, he has this kind of banner piece of artwork he creates. And I believe that also says, you know, great expectations or just expectations. Yeah. 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 So yeah, that's a, is an interesting kind of take on the, the theme difference. I really wanted to read his essay about the book. (laughs) I thought the essay was just the art piece. Like that's what I would have turned in. Also good. (laughs) I still want to read it. I want to get like a deeper look. So should we talk a little bit about style? Yes, um, please. And <laughs> style and difference from other representations of Spider-Man that we've seen. And I know that there have been plenty of animated Spider-Man um, on TV. Mm-hmm. It has, this is the first real Spider-Man animated film. Um, so what do we get stylistically and... Everything. Would you like to start, Megan? I, I see you I, just I have, ready to go. I have lots of notes about this. Um, so stylistically, <laughs> I thought the film was extraordinarily striking. This is one of the most exciting animated movies that I think I've seen in recent years. Um, I think I was really excited about The Secret of the Kells when it came out, too, and I saw it for the first time. Uh, but this was... Good reference. Right? Um, <laughs> just a really stunning visually film. And they purposefully did a lot to pull it back to... Um, an actual comic book style, like it's drawn. We have the black line weight. Um, we also have a lot of halftone patterns in the coloring and the shading, and we also see uh, hatch marks in a lot of the, the character spaces and things like that as they, they move through. And, of course, um, I'm sure you have this in your notes somewhere, but Kirby dots. Kirby dots everywhere. I love Kirby dots. Um, Could you explain what Kirby dots are oh, for so, some of the people um, who For some of the people at know. home, uh, Kirby dots, uh, Jack Kirby, famously uh, one of the, the greatest founding comic book illustrators of all time. He loved these uh, like kind of like bubbly patterns that, uh, especially if you look at like the Silver Surfer comics, uh, he uses them extensively in the background of space um, uh, and a lot of the, uh, like the uh, apocalypse stuff, um, uh, Mr. Miracle kind of things. You see a lot of it in the background and it's just these mm-hmm. round dots that kind of come together and coalesce into like big flowing shapes. They're really beautiful. If you think of um, like those little dropper like uh would it like desk toys that have like an oil or a fluid inside it and it just like drops through and it doesn't always come together right away but it eventually kind of loses cohesion and comes together mm-hmm. yeah it's like those hmm. good metaphor that's the best way to explain it in words without <laughs> like having a visual for this podcast <laughs> <laughs> what did you think stylistically um I, re- I really appreciated the way that they actually like referenced it as a comic book even doing like panels and split screens a number of times um to like kind of draw it up they had um very classic looking uh text with the offset drop shadow coloring kind of thing um that reference looked a lot like you know 60s 70s comic books um on screen a number of times when uh to reference his internal monologue um uh i i really really appreciated the fact that they did have it as it was digitally animated but like they had the the lines on there to make it look it didn't look drawn but to make it kind of uh, feel like mm-hmm. you know with that same kind of uh like outlined characters even though a lot of 
um, almost all computer animated movies don't don't bother those kind of outlines, but I feel like that makes it feel more like a comic book. Um, I really appreciated the the like with I mean, granted, this I think this is more of a kids movie um, than a lot of comic book movies lately. But that being said, they um, comic movies not specifically animated, but like comic movies overall are kind of this still in this stage where they're dark and bleak and gritty and things like that. Mm -hmm. And this film was very fun and visually was not dark or bleak or gritty. Even um, the, like the night scenes in New York city and when he is miles is eventually in his all black Spider-Man costume. It's still, there's lots of color. Mm -hmm. Um, and and I really appreciated the use of, of color and uh, yeah overall the art was was fantastic. Yeah. There's a spoilery thing that I still want to talk about the style regarding, but we'll come back. We'll so circle back. We'll circle back to that. Yeah, I, I did appreciate that even though he is in a all black costume, that you never lost any part of his body mm -hmm. into the background. You never lost seeing him moving around. You never lost sight of where he was and, and that just goes to show like keeping the backgrounds lighter keeping it a lot of the purples and pinks that were that were going everywhere flying up which you don't expect to see you know hot pinks and yellows and those really sharp greens mm -hmm. in the palette for a spider-man movie um let alone a, any comic book movie lately not since i think the closest they got in a spider-man movie is you know sam raimi pushing to have things just be a little bit brighter saturation. Yeah. And if you remember back uh, to Ang Lee's um, The Hulk movie. Yes. Um, Do we have to? <laughs> just for, for one brief point, which is that Ang Lee tried to do a thing that this movie did successfully in very constantly visually referencing those split screen comic book panels and reference like make it look and feel like a comic book. Ang Lee tried to do that in that movie and that wasn't the reason that movie was bad, but like it didn't really work there either. But I feel like this movie managed to do that successfully yeah. having multiple panels on the screen at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I, I had the same thought about halfway through, there was one shot and I said, oh, this is what Ang, because we're on you know a first name basis, this, this is what <laughs> Ang was trying to do um, with Hulk. Like this was the moment he just didn't know what he was doing. You know, he didn't have the same attention, attention to intention uh, for how to put something on a screen that way and how you're moving to the next thing. Yeah. It was just um, a gimmick way of putting things on the screen. It wasn't thought through on, no, we're, we're talking about this, so we need to see this at the same time. You know, yeah. We're seeing a progression. We're telling the story. There's a narrative reason for it to be split that way, as opposed to now we're just looking like a comic book. You know, right. there's more to it. There's an intention, narrative-wise, for seeing it. Yeah, I also appreciate this movie had physical, like not, nothing's physical because it's animated, but like they, there were comic, <laughs> there were comic books in the movie. In like Miles Morales is reading a Spider-Man comic book, um, and then whenever they would call back the origin story of a character, you would see that comic book fall onto the pile. And it was like, like these are comic book characters and this is the meeting of these different comic book characters 
was not they didn't try to go like this is taking place in the real world and like you know it was just <laughs> like these are comic book characters we're just going to throw them together and you know you bought your ticket so clearly you're into that so let's just do it <laughs> so um the the two of you um specifically uh, adam and chris mentioned uh items about color and I thought the color was extremely, um, it was very intentionally done in this movie. Um, mm. Can I give like yeah. a five minute crash course on color theory and how it relates to superheroes? Oh boy. Cool. Yes. That's All right. a yes. That's a that's yes. A yes. That, that wasn't, that wasn't that was ironic. A, or, that wasn't ironic. That, that that sarcastic. Like, oh, go. No, that's like, um, let's do it. Cool. So five minute, <laughs> well, I don't know if it's going to be five minutes, but basic crash course on color theory and superheroes. Um, so for the vast majority, uh, your superheroes, your Spider-Man, Superman, Wonder Woman, are going to be wearing primary colors, red, blue, and uh, yellow. Um, sometimes like it's interpreted as like a gold accent, but you know, same kind of thing. Um, now there are some people, there are some characters that buck this trend where you have like um, Green Lantern or the Hulk who is specifically secondary colors, but usually you see secondary colors reserved for villains. So your oranges, your purples, your greens. And those are secondary color, or yeah, secondary colors, and you have those associated with villainous or weird characters. Um, so the color use in here, there was a lot of, and even when I saw the trail, the first trailer after the Venom movie <laughs> that we're not going to talk about, um, which I actually enjoyed a little bit, but um, the when I first saw that, I thought it was the the lighting in that whole scene where they're in the the cemetery together. It's all red and blue. You see this cold blue background and you have this red light that's on this building near the cemetery and so like the color use is extremely strong throughout the entire film um and something that i noticed this is that i never actually paid attention to before but i only just now caught on um gwen's costume is like an inversion of the traditional spider-man colors because it's mostly white and black instead of mostly red and blue but her red and her blue are actually tertiary colors they're not even secondary colors so you've got like a magenta and a cyan mm. in her in her hood and her her uh flats and everything so i just thought that was a really interesting way to kind of handle it um I, I don't know what that tells us about the character from like a visual design standpoint or if they just wanted to do like if i'm thinking about it too deeply and they just wanted to do like an off red and an off blue because she's like spider-man but not quite um but you, so you'll see those, col those colors are th throughout the whole film. <clears throat> Pardon me. All I know is that Spider-Gwen's costume is absolutely fantastic. Oh, it's beautiful. It's such, like, one of the best recent superhero costumes. Because Spider-Gwen is also um, probably the most recently created character in this film mm -hmm. by, I don't know when, when Penny Parker came out, but probably by a lot. Um, so, but I, I kind of had a, uh, but her costume is, is fantastic. And I think Spider-Gwen is also just like a great character. But mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, interesting yeah. comments about color. And now I'm thinking through like every superhero that I know of. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Red, blue, and yellow, red, blue, and yellow. There's, um, <laughs> if you're interested in this and you would like to learn more, uh, there's actually a fantastic book called uh, Super Graphic by Tim. And I'm not sure if his last name is pronounced Long or Lung, but it's L-E-O-N-G. Uh, it is... Available wherever fine books are sold, I'm sure. But he's got into, it's full of it's full of all sorts of interesting like superhero facts and charts and graphs and stuff. But he's got this beautiful series of graphs where he breaks down primary colors, superhero co uh, costumes by color ratio. So it's like mostly red, mostly blue, mostly and and then it goes in and does the same thing for the villains. And it's all orange and green and purple. It's really visually interesting to look at. Well, when you're thinking of some of the basic 
Spider-Man villains that mm-hmm. you end up with. Uh, number one, you get Doc Ock. I know we had this conversation last right. time. We're like, who's the right, right, who's no. the Spider-Man villain? You have, you know, but you yeah, feel Doc like Doc Ock, Doc Ock and Green Goblin that, are both green and purple. Green and purple, right? Yeah. Sandman uh, is yellow and green. Yeah. Vulture's green. Vulture's green. green. Venom and Kingpin are black and white, but Kingpin is a Daredevil villain, but also is a Spider-Man right. villain. I thought he was really beautiful. He handled it in this film, too. Um, well, I know I talked before on the last show about uh, how Venom was sort of just this big black shape, and in this film, um, Kingpin is the big black shape. He, they stylized him in such a way that you really get a, a really amazing sense of the absolute enormity of him compared to all the other characters. Um, and there's something very specific that they did with the lighting on him, where he only gets rim lighting on his shoulders. Mm-hmm. You don't see any other lighting on his suit. He's just a solid, flat, black shape apart from this rim lighting on his back and his shoulders. And that sort of gives you this impression that the light is always coming from behind him, and he is always eclipsing everything around him. It's a really fantastic uh, design choice. I was going to have to go back and watch the whole thing all over again just for this kind of design stuff. Yeah. I know. I'm ready to like see it a second and a third time already. <laughs> I feel like it's been a long time since I've left a movie theater and thought like, oh, that movie was too short. Or I want to see that again this week. Like that never happens for me. And I'm already like, OK, let's go. Well, the other thing that's really interesting we mentioned like too short is this is a long movie for being an animated film. And that's something that like I really appreciate to take your time. But most of the time when I look at animated films, a lot of them come in real close to 90 minutes. Right. Um, and this one is, is, I think, an hour and 57 minutes. So it's almost at that two-hour mark. And I think that gives them a lot of time to really set up that Miles story, not rush that first school part, not mess that, not, not rush the, oh, I have spider powers. Or, like, they, they have a lot of time. They use it very well. It never felt rushed. Um, but it also didn't, like, the movie ended, yeah, and I was like, it, it, you know, like, I felt like a good pacing and I didn't feel like uh, I was there too long. Yeah, there was only one thing that I thought felt rushed and I was already there for like two hours and 40 minutes, not thinking that, not realizing how long the film was. Yeah. You know, I had no problem with it and I just thought they could have taken a little bit more time in a certain, you know, towards the end to wrap up a few things. But it is rare when you're sitting there just thinking, I think it it was uh, the credits had just started, and I was thinking about when I get to see it again. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's a <laughs> there's a lot to unpack in that movie. I noticed so much stuff. I I almost wonder like what am I going to see in this the next time I watch it. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Also, another note about Kingpin is so Kingpin is played by uh, Lee Schreiber, who is overall a fantastic actor, um, but. It's one of those things where like, I appreciate it. He actually had a take on Kingpin that I think is fairly unique. And um, especially with Win- uh, Vincent D'Onofrio's Kingpin and the Daredevil TV series, like to just take it in a completely different direction from that when that is currently like one of the best villain performances uh, in superhero live action history, like to just go somewhere else with it and really make it work and be solid. And then also be different from the Spider-Man animated Kingpin and the, you know, like it's just a new take on it. And like every take on the Kingpin that's existed, I've been like, this is fantastic. 
So apparently, if you want to be a, have a great character to play, play Kingpin because no one's done a bad job so far. No, nope, nobody. <laughs> well, I feel like this is the first Kingpin where we really got a like a New York accent. Yes. Like he felt like he was from New York. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I had a really hard time um, separating Kingpin from um, a current political figure <laughs> in my mind. <laughs> To remain unnamed, we'll call it current political figure one. Yes, yes. It's just, yeah, a certain individual um, that's out there. I, I just, there was something about the the actions and, and the way that he was played that they kept bringing that up, that there was some, I, I like how they played with Kingpin being powerful for one reason, because he commanded power in one way, and then you saw his sheer power physically. So they played with the different sides mm-hmm. of kinds of power that he wields. That you um, and I think they did that in the. Um, I don't know how to describe it. The the flawed film Daredevil, starring Ben Affleck. They try to do the same thing, mm-hmm. where they show he has, you know, political business power, and people are afraid of him for that reason. But he also has a commanding physical power. And of that flawed film, Daredevil starring Ben Affleck, <laughs> my, uh, Kingpin was one of the best parts of that film. There, I, I will. We don't. There, there could be a whole podcast about this. I, <laughs> there are a few very, very shining bits about that film, um, and and but Kingpin, uh, as played by Michael Clark, Clark Duncan, Duncan, I yep. believe, is definitely one of the highlights of that film. So that was not bad casting by whoever did that. <laughs> of, of the many things with that film, that, that was a job well done. Yes. <laughs> also, the shade of red that Ben Affleck's hair was, I feel like that was really well done, just bringing back color theory. Yeah. Not, not like, like uh, the Queen of Atlantis in the, the previews for Aquaman. <laughs> oh, oh, it's bad. Ooh. She needs a fire <sighs> colorist. <laughs> I'm going to stay out of the Aquaman game okay. here. Okay, all right. I've, I've personally, no, you guys can talk about it. I've thrown <laughs> off that universe like I'm done. That's fine. <laughs> That's okay. So um, let's, we're, we're going to give the warning now. Um, from here on out, uh, all bets are off spoiler-wise. So we can be free to talk about anything that we want to talk about and get as Spoilery as you want. So if you continue listening, fans, and have not seen the film, this is your fault if we spoil things for you. And spoiler time. So this isn't just before we, well, I don't know. Anyway, (laughs) something that I'm not sure that happened in this, I'm not sure if it was a really creative plot device for this film or if it is actually has some basis in the comic books. I'm wondering if Megan knows this, is that um, this thing happened where when one spider person uh, would meet another spider person, um, their spider sense would go, Wah! and then they're like, oh, you're like me. And they would know that the other person was a spider person. Um, is, did they just make that up? Um, I think they may have brought that for the film. I'm not really sure. Um, I know that they took some elements um, for this film out of sort of the late or mid to late 90s comics where we get into a weird thing with Spider-Man and there's um, Scarlet Spider who has been Parker, who is maybe Peter Parker's clone. 
Um, <laughs> uh, question mark. Uh, we get Lady Octopus, uh, who is uh, different in the comics than she is in this film, um, because she is uh, Otto Octavius's protege in this. She just seems to be like a distaff counterpart. She is this universe's Otto Octavius. Yes, um, and that's my delightful thing that they made up. It's like, I had to look up, like, is this real? I love this. Yeah, no, I love like, the I, scientific I think, interpretation. I think this is the best interpretation of Lady Octopus that there has been, because she's been in the Sony animated series as well, I think. Um, but I didn't, I didn't really care for her back then, but I, I love, like, hippie mom scientist. <laughs> Dr. Oh Octopus, God, I know. I'm on board. <laughs> I was thinking the uh, divination teacher from Harry Potter, but Professor Trelawney, yes, yeah, that's. I was totally <laughs> getting vibes about her too. Yeah, I, I was, I was very delighted and surprised by by uh, the Doc Ock reveal, mm -hmm. and I, yeah, didn't see it coming, and was, and also thought I was like, this is a great version of this character. It definitely took me by surprise too. And they kept it out of the trailers, and it's like in the first half hour of the movie. And my biggest pet peeve is trailers that give away key information or too much information. And this movie kept so much out of the trailer while still making it seem appealing. And this was, when, when I went to go see it, there were three films that I don't have to see anymore because I saw the trailers before. <laughs> yeah. Before, it's Like, oh, so the dog makes it back home. Oh, that's great. Okay, cool. I'm, I'm oh, set. I saw that trailer too. Oh my God. Isn't the movie called A Dog's Way Home? It you is don't a dog's journey, <laughs> but but it fights with the coyotes. But the mountain lion isn't going to tear it apart. That's cool. anyway. Oh, anyway, <laughs> no. okay. Into the dog verse. Into um, the dog verse. So we're bound now that computer animation's really good. Right. So, uh, but yes, I, I thought the spider people instantly recognize each, each other um, was a really great device that didn't feel like a plot device. And when you think about how many spider people met other spider people, it saved them a lot of time. Yeah. Yeah. One hundred percent. Yes. Agree. But my only complaint about that is there's then the plot hole of like Miles and Gwen meet early on and they don't have that. He was but not he a spider a person yet. Then. Yeah, he wasn't bitten yet. <sighs> don't know because he but sticks to her hair. That that is that is not when they meet. But you're right. She should have known it then. That being said, he was not in control of his spider power, so he would not have known. It is entirely possible okay. that she knew, and that's why she knew to follow him to Doc Ock's lap. I agree with that. That's what I took you've, away from it. You've won me over, Adam, and I'm not the kind of like podcast movie critic with dozens of listeners that will die on a hill for one plot hole. <laughs> I agree. It's, it's okay to gloss over. Um, I think that it's totally doable, and you've talked me into a plausible situation that works anyway. Thank you, dozens no, of listeners. No, but when you when you watch it, when you watch it, um, they meet before he's bitten. And then once he is bitten, then her attitude changes because she knows mm. what's going on. Mm. Um, and I think she knows what's going on because of the hand situation. <laughs> um, <laughs> if, if not spider sense, I think she has a pretty good inkling on what's happening. I mean, she does tell him to relax as Peter does later. Right. Mm. Right. Yeah. But you're not going to relax if you have your hand stuck to an attractive girl's head. Like I don't, I don't care which Spider Verse you're in. Like that's going to be a difficult feat. It's going to be a problem. Yeah. And Miles, as we as we see, has a very hard time just kind of playing it cool. So <laughs> as Uncle Aaron really tries to to set up for him, he can't quite do it. Can I just say, like one of my favorite scenes, and it's possibly my favorite thing, not to get like spoilery about the end of our podcast, but 
is the scene with him and his uncle Aaron just talking about girls for what feels like seven to ten minutes. It's probably like three minutes. Mm-hmm. But them sitting together talking and just hanging out and just two people talking, just an uncle and his nephew trying to, here's how you talk to a girl, here's how this works. I just, it was just really cool. And it was so funny and endearing. Um, the audience that I was with, they were just laughing because it felt authentic. Yeah. Like, oh man, this he does not have game. And that's kind it's of one so of things, real. One of the things I just like that I love, like, and again, like that they took the time. They didn't like, well, we got to get this in in 90 minutes. Like they took the time, like we can have this scene, we can make it long, you know, and, and put the time to it. And that, yeah, it really built up that relationship. And you also got to see, oh, this is what Miles gets from his uncle that he's not getting from his dad. Right. Because there is always that kind of dichotomy set up early on between Miles' dad, who is very cop, very much on the straight and narrow, very loves his son, but like is very pushing him school, you know, be good. You have to follow the rules. You're going to take down all those stickers you put up. And then his uncle, who's like, be cool. This is how you talk to girls. Let's do your art. You know, you're really great artists, you know, kind of pushing them in different directions there. Mm-hmm. So. You get a really great sense of their relationship as brothers, too. I think without them, I don't think they even actually interact no, throughout the don't. course of the film. Yeah. Uh, but you still get an idea of, like, what they are like together. So then question for the panel. Because we love this scene, how great it is. And spoilers for my answer. The answer is yes to my question. Um, do you feel that then how the Uncle Aaron plot ends, is that earned by this scene? I mean, by by the whole first interaction with Uncle Aaron um, being this scene followed by the spray painting mural, taking him to the secret place, you know, uh, spray painting mural scene. Um, I feel like that does set up the Uncle Aaron. There's a couple little hints here and there. He calls Uncle Aaron. Uncle Aaron doesn't answer. He's actually going stashing uh, Peter B. Parker um, into the uh, in Uncle Aaron's apartment and things like that, but yeah, I think it it earns the Uncle Aaron ending. Oh, I was just gonna say, like, while I did, this is my other delightful thing that I didn't know was ripped straight from the comics about Uncle Aaron and Prowler. Um, and I thought while it was done delightfully and I really enjoyed it, it's also like if you watch movies, <laughs> you're like, hmm, okay, the one masked villain and there's one lovable family character. This will be the superhero like family drama setup. Definitely. Um, I thought I thought he was fantastic as Prowler. They did a really good job with his design and with his movement of making him very, very threatening. Like he was mm-hmm. just a very credible danger. Um, not that it would have taken much for Miles at that point, but. Uh, it was a formidable foe. Mm-hmm. It, it, was, it felt like. It, it did feel like a, somebody who is completely confident um, against somebody who was not <laughs> at all confident. Well, and he, the, the, the irony of the situation, him being trying to teach Miles that confidence and that, like, that uh, self-possession. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways, they're just mirrors of each other. And of mm-hmm. course, the, you always choose the villain for your film as the one who's going to make the character shine, you know, what parts of the character need to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so here's another question. So who is the villain of the film? 
I mean, I would say Kingpin. I mean, that's he's he's the one who has the plot. He's the last one standing at the end. That the person that both a kills Spider Man and b uh, Miles has to face on his own at the end. So I think Kingpin is going to be the the big bad the big in this bad. movie. I would agree. And he hires everyone else. Everyone else is working for him. Yeah, no, right. well, he's got the money, you know? Everybody needs everybody needs finances. Um, so the thing about Kingpin is he always works best as a villain. And, of course, every villain works best as a villain when they, ha- <laughs> when they are doing what they are doing for a reason that the audience can kind of understand and get behind. So mm. uh, in, in the comics, I know he's had a daughter um, mm-hmm. in the film. This was his wife and his son um, that he lost. And in some ways, that loss chases all of the characters because um, he loses his family. Of course, uh, we know Peter Parker loses his Uncle Ben. And the, the spider persons uh, discuss this amongst themselves. I've been there. I've lost someone. This is, some, this is a conversation that happens multiple times throughout the film. And even there at the end, we see uh, Penny Parker lose her robot, which is perhaps not as heartrending a, a loss as the loss of a beloved relative, but it's, you can still see it pains her, it hurts her. And so that kind of like loss of a loved one seems to be very central uh, well, to the whole thing. Didn't the robot have the sentience of her dead father or something? Um, or am I crazy? No, there was a spider. There's a spider that lives I think in the, the robot, robot was built by her father. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, the spider lived in the robot and controlled the robot, but she took the spider home. She so, took the spider mm-hmm. home, so it was just like that construction of the robot. And maybe that was that the robot was created for her father. I misread yeah. that then. It was like, oh, it ho- holds the soul of her father somehow. Like, <laughs> I was get, really confused. Get into a weird coyote situation. I know that that anime part went really fast. Yeah. <laughs> it's like I don't. What happened? As anime does. What yeah. happened? I'm I'm just distracted by these lines, <laughs> these flying like crazy lines and her big eyes. Um, in a, in a good way. Uh, so the other thing, thinking about villains, uh, who are the main characters of this film? Uh, so uh, that would definitely be Miles. And then I would say, uh, I'm going to say Peter B. Parker, because that is how he's listed in the credits. Peter as, Dad Bod Parker. As Dad Bod. <laughs> well, he's, the other thing also, I thought that was a very clever clip play because there's Peter Parker in the A universe and then Peter B. Parker comes in from the B universe. Oh, I didn't think of that, yeah. Um, but mm-hmm. also B is, his middle name is Ben, I guess, after his uncle? I don't know. I think it's Benjamin. Yeah, yeah so, but but he is listed in the credits as Peter B. Parker, um, at least on IMDb. That's how he's listed, so. Whereas Peter A. Parker, I don't know, uh, is played by Chris Pine. I don't know if you guys caught that. Like the Hilarious also the cast list for this, for this movie Spectacular. is so good. This is such a good including Nicholas Cage. I said it. <laughs> There's a video online of Nicholas Cage doing the line when um, Spider Noir shows up. He says, "You know why? Where's the wind coming from? We're in a basement." He's like. The wind follows, and the wind smells like <laughs> rain. And like you see him acting that out, it's like wow, he he committed to this role like more than I've seen him commit. Not since Face Off <laughs> have I seen Nicolas Cage fully commit to a role like that. Yeah, it was it was pretty amazing. Getting back to main characters, main characters, <laughs> right? Yeah, I'm adding Spider Gwen to our list. 
Oh, yeah, I will. I, I, yeah, definitely, because she, I mean, she's with us basically through the whole film. Uh, even when she shows up uh, the first time as Gwanda. Yes. Um, I've, I've, for me, the main characters are characters who change and have a fundamental moment where they have a change in the movie. And I think both, obviously, Miles and Peter B. Parker, but also Gwen has a fundamental change of, like, being friends with people. Like, her personality changes throughout the course of this movie. And I'd say Uncle Aaron as well, but, you know, he dies partway through, so. <laughs> There's that. He he has the moment, but it gets ended very quickly. Yeah. Hmm. Whereas I'd say, like, in Spider-Man Homecoming, Vulture is a main character in that movie, because he also has a change there the entire movie. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I, I, I actually um, uh, discussed that with my husband on the way home from watching the movie, is uh, how Vulture really stole the show in Homecoming. And, uh, yeah, it's a vulture movie. Yeah, no, it's it's the vulture movie. Um, I think I still think it was a really great movie. Michael Keaton was a great choice for casting. Um, it was it was just really good. And you like, this is this, this is the first time I've ever cared about the, the vulture because he acts, <laughs> yes. like his motives make sense. He's trying to do like, and this is a terrible thing to say, but it, like he's like a very Republican superhero almost in this case mm -hmm. where he's trying to do his business, trying to, to uh, keep a good life for his family and take care of them and protect them. And it kind of goes awry for him, though, um, mm. because he ends up making bad choices, doing bad things. But And I think that's a template for Kingpin in this movie to a certain degree. Mm -hmm. I'm sure Sony and Disney Marvel like shared enough notes to like legally know which ones they can't overlap with. <laughs> I'm sure that's why Vulture isn't in this movie. Like, right. you can't have Vulture because we have him now. That's how these <laughs> rights things work. Mm. Well, I mean, they Marvel, though, as legal. I mean, I, I don't know. I'm sure they, they there's a lot more cooperation there now with Spider-Man Homecoming. But Kingpin is is a is a daredevil villain. And we use a Marvel property. He's in but two different. Marvel TV. Also in the Daredevil movie. Like, Kingpin's <laughs> a daredevil villain. Spider-Man just kind of co-opted him because Spider-Man's more popular. And he's such a great villain. Well, he was such a he was a, a very principal villain in the '90s. In the '90s TV show, show yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. that's true. But a much different character. Well, than very the different character that we get now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, a uh, quick note, although we I went, was thinking about this, and then we strayed. Um, the <laughs> the spray painting scene with Uncle Aaron, where where Miles is bit by the radioactive spider. I just want to say there was a great moment there where Miles was bit by a radioactive spider, and it it didn't like it almost commented on all the drama that's built in that in every other Spider-Man origin story we've seen because he's bit and he goes, oh, smacks a spider, spider falls off dead <laughs> and he just walks away. <laughs> but that's that's part of this movie. Like, everything about this movie is thinking of all the conventions a superhero movie's going to have and just figuring out a new way to, like, really turn it on its head. And I think it's part of the, the origin story here. Like, okay, this is an origin, but not in the sense of, like, you have to do the spider bite and the, the family member dying and the trying to get money part, those are all there, but they're not done in the way of like 2002's Spider-Man. Yeah. <laughs> I love the call out with the, uh, the finger guns and the body roll and everything. And this happened. Oh. We're not going to talk about that. <laughs> is, so do, is this officially Spider-Man 4? Are we going to call it that? Is this a continuation of Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man? Is that what you're asking? Is it just a version of a Spider-Man that's it, close to Tobey Maguire, or is it continuing? I think that. That is the one, because it's it's only a continuation of that in so much as the Spider-Verse is mul uh, multiplicitous. 
So there's Tobey Maguire is part of this continuity somewhere. You just have to keep spinning the wheel until you find him. And maybe Peter B. Parker is that Spider-Man, but... I feel like Chris Pine, Peter Parker A, mm -hmm. I feel like is the Tobey Maguire but you Peter know, Parker. I well, feel who has the album? Who, who has, has the, the album? Good point. That's, the Christmas I mean, album. Well, because the other thing <laughs> is, so Peter, like, let's talk about the the, the Spider-Man... Spider-Man, let's talk about the Peter Parker Spider-Man. Like, there's so Peter many Spider-Man, oh my gosh. <laughs> let's talk about Spider-Man in this movie. Yeah, he's great. Which one? Um, so uh, Peter, Peter A. Parker, uh, uh, the Spider-Man who dies, is like, it, he is Peter Parker in his prime. He is 25. He has been Spider-Man for 10 years since he was 15. He has saved the city. He is married to Mary Jane. Uh, things are great. He's popular. He's beloved by the city. Um, and that's kind of reflective of how we think about Spider-Man, whereas mm -hmm. Peter B. Parker is in a way more reflective of Spider-Man as we've seen him at various times in the comic books. Um, his mm. relationship, like he is now older. Um, I actually, like, I don't know where he is in the current comic book storyline, but Spider-Man, like, but Peter B. Parker, like, Spider-Man is older. Spider-Man was created in, in the 60s, so like that Spider-Man is only in his 40s, so he's still young comparatively. But his relationship with Mary Jane is didn't work out probably because of all the stress of being Spider-Man and eating one kids and there's like all this stuff and like his life is kind of falling apart. So he has this arc too where um, he has to like learn to trust himself and like go for things and not be scared as well. And for him, it's actually like this this great kind of moment at the end where he's gonna stay so all the other Spider-Man can escape because they don't think Miles is up to it. And then, but that in a way is almost an escape for him. If he doesn't go back to his universe, he can stay in this universe and be a hero or he can go back to, to his universe where he's kind of a loser and his wife left him and, you know, he has to deal with all of his real problems. Mm -hmm. Or he can die here and be a hero one last time. And there's kind of that interesting moment too where then he has to then take it from Miles that he can go back and can get his own life together again. And that's, like, I love that dichotomy between Miles and, Peter B. Parker. No, oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's uh, that's how I feel about it as well. Um, I just loved him and his. Can, can I say that this movie told me that I'm finally an adult? Um, <laughs> no, for real though. Um, I, for once in a movie, I related more with the adult characters than with the young protagonists. Um, mm. So you have Peter B. Parker, and he's trying to tell Miles that he, uh, you know, that he's going to be the one to stay behind and destroy the, the collider um, because Miles isn't prepared to, Miles shouldn't have to take on that responsibility, Miles is just a kid, you know, he's not ready for it. And um, just all, just having the weight of all of that experience, that life experience that he's had that we don't see in Miles or in young Peter, Peter A, if we're gonna designate him that, um, it, it's kind of great uh, just to see that happen. And, and Miles' dad, I related to a lot too, just because yeah. he's like, when I was a kid, I was kind of in that same position where you have the, the parent that really pushes you. They're like, you're going to be successful and you're going to do it because I said so. And you kind of rebel and you're like, oh, that's not what I want to do. And so it like, it just ends up being the same. But now like I'm older and now I can totally see the dad's point. It's like, no, you really shouldn't do this. This is the best thing for you. It's going to set you up for life. Yeah. It was the scene where, the father is trying to talk to Miles and Miles is, 
you know, gagged, essentially, oh, like, yeah. webbed by the mouth and tied oh, up. Oh, so, so he, touching. He can't respond. He can't mm-hmm. say anything. And his dad is saying, look, you don't have to talk back. Let me just say this. I was like, oh, God, like, this is going to this is gonna happen. I have seven years before I have this scene happen with <laughs> my son about something, you know, going on. And um, there's just been a lot of things in movies where I've noticed a father trying to talk to their son about something really important and it's closed doors. I'm like, oh, no, I don't, I don't want to have to deal with that. Someday. But it's just really interesting how they spent a lot of time making adult characters who weren't the things that the kids were rebelling against. Like the, the kids weren't... Like, Miles wasn't trying to go against his father because his father's like, you can't go out into the world and do this. He wasn't being overly controlling. If we go on the um, father scale from, like, King Triton in Little Mermaid, (laughs) you know, all the way through to, I don't know what the opposite on that scale would be. Um, Adam Sandler and Big Daddy? I'm not sure. Like, (laughs) I mean... Well, the, the thing is, though, is he's not he's he is not trying to like he's trying to encourage his son, but he's saying, go over here. This is like my wisdom. My life is mm-hmm. telling me like this is the best opportunity for you is to go to this better school. You got in. You earned it. But like, you know, we have to go like that's he's trying to push his son out there, but he's not really trying to control his son. Mm-hmm. And. Like, I don't know, I just, I also love that we have, there's so many superhero origin stories where it's like the parents are dead or it's a broken home or this is weird situation. And like, I love that like Miles is his kid, his dad's a, uh, a cop, his mom's a nurse, they're a good family, they love him so much. He's got a good home life. Like, yeah, he doesn't get along with his dad, but he's 13. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I don't what know any 13 year old boy <laughs> perfectly gets along with her dad, you know? And this has happened especially in animation for younger kids, but um, that we get good parents, especially good fathers, you know, who are doing the right thing and trying hard and being emotionally there for their kids and trying to express themselves and not just putting on this false toxic masculinity stuff as a father controlling their kids, Mm -hmm. that the reason they were fighting was because of where they were, you know, as I'm this age and yeah, I'm just rebelling because puberty, as Miles P- says, puberty. a lot. It's a puberty thing. <laughs> it's a puberty thing. Do you know what puberty is? <laughs> Such a good moment. <laughs> so I'm sure Miles has like this kind of like imposter syndrome with going to this this elite school that is, you know, that he, he won the lottery, but he passed the entrance exam. So he is on every technical level good enough to be there, but he just feels like he doesn't belong. And of course that always... Well, and you get the impression that he went from being the smart, artistic kid, you know, in the average school to being the average kid in the smart school. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, I mean, a thing where, like, he kind of went from to a spot where he's not special and doesn't you know feel like he belongs intrinsically because he's not part of that neighborhood so I, there's kind of that that change as well but. it's a uh what is it they call a uh, big fish in a little pond yeah. yeah kind of a thing yeah 
They well, did. I think they also tried to cram the artistic kid into a STEM school. Yeah. And I think you yeah. see that at the end where he's using his art to express himself in that STEM environment. I did find it interesting that they kept bringing back um, 42 and the lottery. Did you guys <laughs> notice that? I saw that. So like in the mm-hmm. opening credits, they had like lottery balls and one of them was 42. Um, and then the spider that bites him is code number 42. Hmm. And I guess oh, that's, I, that part. I guess that's, um, Jackie Robinson's number. Really? Um, 42. And he had a poster of Jackie Robinson, I think on his wall. Yeah. Um, so I was just thinking through about, you know, if you're lucky enough to be that kid who gets <laughs> the spider powers, like you're, you're lucky it's like you hit the lottery, even though it's not everything that you expect it to be. Him getting in the school was one way of winning. Him getting bitten by the spider is one way of winning. And they all come with their own different expectations for how it's going to you know, play out. Yeah. But until he owns it and does it his own way, um, it's not going to it's not going to work. Yeah. So. Anything else you want to say, Mackenzie? Um, I'm just really excited about the future of this story thread, if you will, um, and how things are going to shape up. I've done some light wiki research, so take all this as rumor and for granted, but everyone seems to love this movie. It's getting so well known. We were just discussing before recording how there's one bad review from a person who doesn't seem to understand animation or film. Um, yeah, just film in general, movies. Yeah, I mean it, it was it was number one at the box office, and Mortal Engines is a flop. So yeah, I mean like this that votes the, very well for it um, as well. I think it's currently the top reviewed animated film of all time on Rotten Tomatoes, and I know it just came out while we're recording this, but I think it's <laughs> going to stand strong. It's also surprisingly low grossing for how much it is, but it's also like the top grossing December release animated film, which is fair because. When do animated films come out in December? Well, also, and like, so we are recording this. It came out on Friday. Um, we going into Christmas weekend, which is a big weekend movie. And mm-hmm. as I said, it seems like Mortal Engines isn't going to steal, be the big Christmas movie this weekend. Um, and I think something where this film is, is a great film to see with your family. Um, mm-hmm. I was in the theater. There were a lot of kids in the theater. There were, like, I was there with my wife. We did not bring our son because he's two and we're not (laughs) jerks. Um, And there was a lot of, but there were a lot of other adults there without children. Like, this is a good film for kids. It's a good film for families. It's a good film for adults without kids. And I think that, like, I would not be surprised. I mean, listeners, you in the future know. Um, but I would not be surprised if this movie like did very well and was number one or two next weekend as well. And there's there's only one thing that could get in its way, um, and that is Mary Poppins. That is the power of Lin Manuel Miranda in Mary Poppins Returns. Mm. I'm going to celebrate the box office where we have four at least partially animated movies topping the charts of Mary Poppins Returns, Spider-Man, The Grinch. What's the other one? Ralph Breaks the Internet. Ralph Breaks the Internet. <laughs> the one we this talked is... about just recently. Uh, sh- <laughs> this has already never happened before. We're like, at the time of recording, three of the top four films are animated. 
Right. It's never happened. So. And I, I think it's one thing that I don't usually say after I see a movie um, as well is like that's going to win everything. Yeah. I like halfway through. Um, no, it wasn't halfway through. So he gets, uh, Miles gets bitten by the spider and suddenly he starts having his inner monologue being shown by the yellow um, monologue text everywhere. And it's like, no, no, no. And just being, why am I up. thinking so loud? Everyone exactly. knows. Yes. Everyone knows. They all know. Like everything is just, um, I was just going through that. And it was that scene, and I said, this is going to win everything. Like, this yeah. is, there's no contest anymore. And as it kept going and going and got, getting better and richer and more extended, I, I said, story-wise, they had me. And then you get in the design and the color and everything that they brought in style-wise. And I, this is like nothing else that's come out recently. <laughs> This is a victory for Spider-Man. It's a victory for animated animation as a genre. Well, not genre, because animation is a genre, but a medium. Thank you. It's a victory <laughs> for superhero movies. Sorry, I almost misspoke there. Um, <laughs> and as crazy as this is, like the number of like sequel type things already talking about of like a Spider-Women movie with Gwen and Silk and Spider-Woman in it. Um, Phil Lord and Chris Miller. Is that right? Yes. Those are the right names? Okay, sorry. Um, they want Spider-Ham shorts on TV. Um, I guess the s direct Miles Morales sequel supposedly already has uh, Joaquin Dos Santos signed on to direct. He did a lot of the Justice League Unlimited, Avatar The Last Airbender, Korra, Voltron. Um, so as far as like directing animation, I don't think you can be better than this guy to move into a movie with this much inventiveness in it. Yeah. It's just a really beautifully crafted film from start to finish. Like, so there's there are yeah I'm agreeing on all of that, but there are two. <laughs> it sounds like we're wrapping up, and there's two so, things I want to talk things. about. Yes, yes. Um, so one with the use of color is the final fight sequence. Um, did you guys feel like that was overwhelming with? Because so the final fight sequence, they're like there's all these like four, five different cities all coming out and exploding to each other and they're jumping from a train to a building to inside of a train and then there's multiple realities all colliding at the same time and, and they're fighting Kingpin and fighting Doc Ock and like all these characters are fighting scorpions there um, <laughs> and like who's not like any version of scorpion ever I've seen but whatever um, no one cares about scorpion that's also <laughs> why scorpions. so like does, does that seem like that, I, did that visually? I felt like that was like very overwhelming and almost like I'm not sure if it was too much or if it was like on the edge of being too much. I feel like it was leading to that, to something like that. Mm -hmm. I did get lost sometimes, um, but then they brought it back and focused in where they needed to focus. Like here's the, what do they call it? The the Kajigger. The Goober. The Goober. <laughs> yeah, they kept on focusing in on that and focusing in on where the story was and tried to give you a sense of where everybody was. But I did get I did get overwhelmed. It was just it was really overly stimulating. I didn't feel overwhelmed. Uh, it was very chaotic, um, but of course that's by intent because right. it's. I mean, it's you have multiple realities converging and there's a battle going on. And yeah, it's going to be super <laughs> super chaotic. Um, 
So I, it was diff difficult to follow, but I think that's done, again, like very intentionally, so it didn't bother me. Um, what did bother me is the way that hippie mom Doc Ock went out. Mm -hmm. Like, that's not, that's it's such an unsatisfying end R to refresh her. Us. Refresh us. Because I can't even remember. Right? Okay, so we, we have all the chaos going on, and we, um, you know, uh, I think Kingpin is in there at that point, but he, so, but it's, he's having a hard time following the Spider-Man, as we all did. Um, but you see Doc Ock, and she kind of comes up, and she's got more control of herself than everybody else, because, of course, she's got four extra limbs to deal with. Uh, all of these planes that are kind of around her. Um, and she comes after uh, Miles and Peter B. Uh, you see her coming, and she's like, the, it switches to this shot of her coming directly at the viewer, which is uh, Miles and Peter in this case. Um, and she just gets hit by the train, just hit by the oh, train. Oh, that's right. And she's just gone, and that's it. And we don't see any, don't see or hear anything else of her. But thematically and writing wise, that worked so well for me because they have that kind of fight with her, and it's very satisfying up until that point. And then you see her, there's like this slight moment of victory of like, okay, we think we won. And then she comes back and they all prepare. There's like close up, like this is going to take everything we got. And she starts rushing and then gets hit by the train. And it's both this subversion of like the hero with a thousand faces of like the death second chance. And also like, yes, Liv is great. We love her. She's not the main villain. We're literally going to get her out of the way by hitting her with a train. Like she's out of the way. <laughs> She's stronger than this. She's better than this. We acknowledge it. This is not that movie. Okay. All right. I don't fully... I'll, I'll go I'll go 70% with you along there. You're not on board the train with me? Oh, no. I, I think story-wise it was important that they got it down to Miles and Kingpin and that interaction. They yes. took a good amount of time once it was down there, but I think it... it blew up a little bit too much for them. So if they not, they needed to get her out of the way some somehow and they needed to not take all the energy out of the scene doing it. Um, but that being said, as we just realized, at least two, maybe three of us didn't remember what happened to her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had I couldn't I couldn't recall how she got rid of it. And now I'm sort of remembering. Yeah. I remember it once you described it, but I'm yeah. like, oh right, what are you what right? happened? Yeah. What happened? You're right. So yeah. it, I guess maybe there that part wasn't super satisfying. <laughs> All right. Thing. I just hope she sucked into the Spider Women reality, and she's the villain of that that's, movie. Yeah, that's what. That's my. That's my internal uh, head cannon. That's, she she didn't yes. die. She didn't die. We didn't actually see a body. She's not dead. So we only see like Green Goblin <laughs> die in this movie. I mean, other than Peter A. Parker. <laughs> so thing two, and I thought about a third thing. So this is where we're going. To go so this is actually going to be what what yeah. So thing two, uh, Aunt May in this movie. Is awesome. Oh yeah, yes. absolutely. We haven't talked about that at all. Unrepentant badass. Uh, Lily Tomlin as Aunt May slash future Madam Web. Right. Yeah. Aunt May like totally like and and there's like the spider cave and like she like totally knew what was going on and like was like on top of it supporting Peter Parker. Like total contrast to how Aunt May has been portrayed in like everything else ever. So that was super cool. Um, yeah. I don't know what you guys' thoughts on that. I just loved her, like, take this outside. Like, take it outside. Well, the woman's got plastic on her furniture. She oh, I, a clean house. Yeah. I, I did enjoy, like, that was another spot of using the comic book framing of her seeing, you know, the china in the cabinet and that over there, and oh. you just see it, like, all the stuff about to be destroyed. Take it outside. <laughs> <laughs> I know what's going to happen. Just leave. That poor table with the little Queen Anne legs. Oh, yeah. Oh, just smashed. Gone. <laughs>
But yeah, I I couldn't place the voice until the credits. Like, yeah. But it was just such a good performance. It, it was just it was, so unexpected and so delightful. Especially yeah. the line um, "took you long enough." Yeah, yeah, that was great. Like, so Amy was 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 fantastic in this film, and I I loved her like almost Alfred yeah. aspect to her, mm. and like being the support character for Spider Man. And I don't know if she's ever been that in any other medium that I'm aware of. Um, but I really appreciate it. I thought it was a cool change in pace for her. Yeah. Uh, third and final final thing I want to discuss: uh, Spider Ham. In this film, how did you guys feel about Spider Ham? Perfect. This is a perfect Spider Ham. Okay. John Mulaney has such a great voice for a cartoon character. I mean, he practically is a cartoon character, even just like watching his stand up. <laughs> <laughs> they have, um, when he, um, this is a really great story that he told better on in an interview, but when he was cast, they didn't tell him what the movie was. They didn't send him a script. They didn't tell him what the movie was. And then they drove him to this place and, you know, to do the recording. They're like, okay, you're a pig. And, you know, kind of told him that. And they're like, okay, just have fun with it. You know, you're like this pig. And so he starts going off and he just starts having these lines that they can't use. And how the f*** is he going to do that? And how the f*** exactly is he going to do that? I've been spotted him 30 years. <laughs> but it was funny that they're like, he's like, so what rated is this? And they're like, oh, it's PG. And he's like, oh. They're like, well, we just wanted you to have fun. <laughs> uh, I just think in, in a world full of craziness, in a weird way, Spider-Ham grounded it because it made it okay for silliness to exist. Mm -hmm. You know, if Spider-Ham can be there with a huge mallet, um, which I think my actual favorite thing is him handing Miles the mallet and saying, here, you hold on to this. It fits in your pocket. Like, just, <laughs> just like that, that moment to me was just said everything, you know, like this is just so off the wall and that everything is game and the rules of Spider-Ham work here too. It doesn't really even matter. It's fine. I just thought it was... He, I, some people said they wanted more, and I think if he was in there more, he would have been a distraction. I think he was in there just enough to add a little bit of flavor. Yeah. I, I, I want more Spider-Ham, but not in this movie. Right. I, that's where I agree. It's like, what, in the, even like watching the trailer, like I watched the trailer, the first trailer, and I was like, they're making Miles Morales movie oh my gosh, like this is going to be so cool. I'm super excited. And then like, oh, it's the, and like, oh, it's all the Spider-Men are there too. Like, oh, there's Spider-Gwen and all that. And then there's like the one shot and it's like, do pigs talk in this universe or animals talk in this universe? Yes. And I was like, they're throwing Spider-Ham in this movie. They're going <laughs> to ruin this film. Um, and I agree, like if it, if they had gone over the top with like any of this, any Spider-Ham, like they knew Spider-Ham uh, Penny Parker and Spider Noir were more of the top than the other characters and didn't fit in this universe as well as as Gwen, Peter B, and Peter B did. And that's why they got thrown at the same time and got less time and didn't really have solid arcs. But, like, I feel like it was, yeah, I agree. Like, I was concerned. Going in the movie, yeah. I was like, like, I, my biggest concern, like, for it being good was that they were going to just spider ham it up and it was just going to be like, <laughs> like, how am I supposed to be sad that Uncle Aaron's dead 
when like Spider Ham's over there, like quipping, or... quipping and like throwing out banana peels or I don't know, <laughs> like whatever. You know, it's like how's how's that gonna? But it wasn't it wasn't too much. Uh, it was like the right amount, and like again, like it's an animated movie, it's a kids movie, and, and also like when I left was like leaving the theater, the kids behind me were totally cracking up about Spider Ham. And they were like assigning each other roles and they're like, okay, I'm going to be spider ham and you be spider Gwen and you be like, and they were like assigning each other the different roles. And one person's like, wait, why do I have to be Aunt May? I don't, you know, so it was just, it was super cool uh, to see. And I think it was a big hit. So. That's awesome. Yeah. Those, those are my three things. That's your three yeah. things. Uh, so we're just talking favorite things. Yes. Favorite things? Yeah, what were your favorite thing? What was your favorite thing or your favorite moment? It could be three things. Oh, it could be three. Um, well, those are just three things I want to talk about. Those are the three That's things awesome. that Adam okay. wanted to talk about. Um, Before we left. So, uh, once again, I get to look at uh, a, a blatant ad for a food service that does not exist in New York City. But um, So, there was Romita's Pizza in the series that we talked about last time that I thought was funny. If you look in the background, I can't remember which sequence it is. Um, but as I think it's the one as where Miles getting it is pulled along the street because they're attached by the the webbing to the train. Yeah, oh yeah. And yes. in the background, you see Romita's Ramen, is one of the shops that they pass by, <laughs> <laughs> which was just I laughed and I don't uh, nobody else did so. I, but like I said, we had a lot a lot of kids in the theater. But um, uh, what I think one of the things and it's just sort of like a general thing. I think the film uh, managed really well. Uh, establishing time and place mm. um, because we you know we have the birch trees in upstate New York and we have a great uh, sense of moving from fall into winter as we see those beautiful copper leaves in the in the chase sequence in the forest and then we see snow by the time he's ready to take the leap off the building mm-hmm. um, there's just so many great moments in that film it's hard to pinpoint one um, the oh when he goes to when he goes to take the dive from the building he goes oh. up the building and we see we have this great shot overhead shot of him coming up the stairs and he's standing there and then he goes back down and, and he sees the shorter the building <laughs> and goes up that one oh. but then but then he becomes heroic and magnificent and it, you know that that I think that was one of the biggest laughs like oh it was so great because and it's it wasn't quite undercutting. The usual moment that we get of triumph, I mean, it was in some ways, it was mm-hmm. letting go of our expectation of what that scene is going to be. But it totally works because it's real to, I'm a 13-year-old, I'm going to trust myself to jump off a building. Like, mm-hmm. really? Right. <laughs> no, if I, if I were 13 years old and in his situation, I would have done the same thing. <laughs> so like, no, I'm going to try the shorter one first. I'm going to practice off the fence. Practice. Like, let's right. practice like, jumping let's off the build fence. build up to it. <laughs> I think my favorite moment in the film has to be Miles Morales as Spider-Man, like giving his dad a hug and telling him that he loves him. Like, oh. it's just like <laughs> yeah, it was great. and like his dad, like you're like, does he know? Does he not know? Like, what's going on? Like, and uh, it's such a weird like little thing. And you're like, like he's he's trying to keep it cool as Spider-Man, and then he just like gives his dad a big hug because he he like went through the whole thing and he loves his dad. And like I don't know, it was such a cool like way to end it. <laughs> And yeah, I was, I was like, it was very satisfying character ending for the, for that. Yeah. Especially the Spider-Man voice he's using the whole time. Thank you for your help, officer. And it's like, clearly you're this big. (laughs) Exactly. How about for you, Mackenzie? I've got two and I'll try to make the first one short um, because it's hard to articulate still because it's a visual. It's not a writing moment. 
It's the animation. It's I love that this was, as we talked about this entire episode, uh, like visually a combination of comic books and traditional animation. And I think in a lot of ways, street art with the color and all the stylistic choices and room for experimentation come together to enhance either plot or character in each moment. And it's not style for the sake of style. And I think that'll be lost in the narrative of criticism surrounding this movie because it is really pretty. It all means something. It's not just there to look pretty. And I really, really, really appreciate that. Number two, writing-wise, I just love that uh, sassy Peter B. Parker being captured by Doc Ock for the first time and saying, I bet your friends call you Doc Ock. She goes, ha ha ha, no, they call me Liv. My enemies call me Doc Ock. And then the rest of the movie, Peter B. Parker calls her Liv. (laughs) (laughs) Which is such a Spider-Man thing to do. Oh, it is. It's perfectly Spider-Man in like a new Spider-Man thing for a new character. It was magically perfect. (laughs) I love sweatpants, dad bought Spider-Man. Are those sweatpants? Yeah. Yeah. He wore the sweatpants, so good. So good. (laughs) Chris, what was your favorite thing? I went back and forth. I feel like my favorite overall sequence was the scene with Uncle Aaron, like that whole thing. And then I think my actual favorite thing was just the throwaway line of um, the hammer, the mallet. Here, you keep this. It fits in your pocket. Like that, it's just, (laughs) it said so much to me in that moment. It was just this throwaway thing of, like he's giving him that mallet. I guess that still works in our world or his world or what? It's still, it's an, who cares? I hope it's in the sequel. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Thunk. Does he have pockets in the new suit? Who knows? But I I did love that. In conclusion, excellent movie. Spider panel agrees. (laughs) Go see Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse if you listened to all the spoilers already. Eight thumbs up. Yes. Hey, that works out. We're eight (laughs) arms. I had to count two, don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Chris, shall we talk homework time when we're panelists next time? Yes, let's. next time sadly Voltron the legendary defender has ended if you haven't watched the show you should watch it it's on Netflix there's eight seasons by Netflix definition it's really like five or six Um, but at least watch the last two episodes if you don't care that much and we're going to (laughs) be discussing how things end next time on writers get animated yeah an animated show that actually finishes a story in eight seasons, not like four seasons. <laughs> so as always, thank you to our engineer, Nadja Catino, and to Jacob Reed for our theme music. And thank you to Stephen Begala for our recording of this episode. And thank you to our spider panel for joining us once again. Adam Caudill, Megan Patrick, thank you. Very glad to be here. Always a pleasure. <laughs> and if, if there are more spider movies to be had, I'm sure we'll... Um, I was trying to find a way to, like, web you back in. I don't know. I couldn't find a good thing to say. We'll open the collider and multiverse you back in. Multiverses will collide and we will. (laughs) Yeah. 
You can find us on the web. Let us know your favorite moment from Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse on Twitter at WG Animated, or you can like us on Facebook.com slash WG Animated. We'll have links links in our show notes on Facebook, so check it out there. That's all, folks. Are we legally allowed to say that? No, but it's a pig, so I thought it was fitting. Good night, everybody. Was that in the movie? Did he say that's yeah. all, folks? Yeah. But, yeah. Was, okay. uh, they said legally, are we allowed to say that? Okay, that's what I thought. I was like, I am referencing yeah, no, the film that, that we just saw. The reference right? was correct. <laughs>